Oh my God! We did it! We did I, it! I, I, I think I think that the, the podcast gods are, are conspiring against us. Oh, we will! We will! I mean, this push this through. has been this has been going on. Yeah, we're gonna have to. Um, this has been going on for a week now. Um, what with the snowstorm oh and the computers, <laughs> there there is something that. We like there must be something important that we need to talk about that that someone that the Russians are trying to stop us from talking about. Is that, <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That, it's possible. It's the Russians. The Russians. They are. It's there's. I think there's collusion. I think. I, I think it's a Skype witch hunt. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we. Uh, yeah. So so like like you mentioned, we were supposed to record last week and. Um, then, uh, surprisingly, surprising to many people, including me, <laughs> including you, including me, we uh, received uh, almost eleven inches of snow uh, when we were forecasted to get like uh, one to four inches, and uh, that meant I couldn't get to my office to record a podcast because the university was closed and my microphone was here and my headphones were here, and so anyway, I've, I've decided to reorder another set. This is this is what I was doing while I was. Uh, um, uh, preparing for our podcast this morning, uh, order another, um, like microphone. Cause I broke one at home and, and headphones mm. so I can have, uh, backups at home. Cause that would have been, uh, we would have been recording. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good, and I had, uh, had intentions of getting a new microphone, um, and then just have promptly procrastinated that and, and not, and not done anything about that. But I, I should, it would be good to have a home set up and a work, a work set up. So yeah. And then, and we're delayed, we're like 45 minutes delayed this morning, uh, for a whole, whole variety of reasons. Um, virtually all of which are my fault. I think, um, even, even when you restarted your computer, I think it was just because I had a, um, um, time machine backup that was just starting on my oh. computer. So that was probably why I was all robotic. So anyway, you know, you ever have one of those mornings where you wake up and you're like, you know, I got a lot to do today, but, um, I am going to fit it all in. And then yep. w- there's like contingencies. And then one, once thing, one, one, one thing goes bad. And then uh, like the, the dominoes are just stacked too close together. And then yes. just sort of, yeah. I, anyway, I feel like, been like my morning. So yeah, I think like uh, most of my days feel like that. Like, like, I think I'm, I am constantly trying to do, to like squeeze too many things in. And it's like, when you look at it on your, uh, on your calendar, you're like, oh, oh yeah, this, like if, if all, if everything goes, breaks the right way, this is all going to work. And that's not a way to plan your day though. I mean, that's a, I'm talking to me as much as to you. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and it's, and it's tough because the stuff that, um, you know, you, you and I probably, um, deal with this, uh, uh, quite, quite a bit together and apart. Um, the stuff that, that ends up on, you know, on my calendar, things that, that people, um, you know, want me for, or things that I'm working on, they're all, like, they're all important to me. Yeah. Right? Like it's, yeah. It, 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 they wouldn't, it, if it wasn't important, I wouldn't put it on my calendar. And so it's there and you're like, Oh, I think I can make, I can make this all work. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally, totally understand. We, um, I had a day, kind of a day like that yesterday, um, that, that started a little bit slow and then, then got like a little bit insane where I had a a two hour block of time to finish off, um, a draft, um, uh, report for, uh, observation project that I'm working on that we've talked about, um, a little bit before where we investigated how people, wash poultry, um, uh, uh, turkey, uh, not turkey, chicken thighs. And 
um, I had, you know, time set aside to do that. And then something came up and then something else came up. And then I, um, Danny was my, the lovely Danny, uh, my wife was in a, um, minor car accident fender bender last Friday. Oh no. Yeah. So, so everybody's, everybody's fine. Um, the car is not so fine. Um, and, and so that, that, so my two hours got got eaten up by um, speaking with an insurance adjuster, and then the collision place that's going to take a look and and try and fix the car, and then Enterprise, and and so it's like my my two hours went down to like forty five minutes, and then hmm. um, you know, and then and then other stuff, right? Like you, the, then then a, a guy uh, showed up uh, to install uh, something in our kitchens and and needed to talk, and so it's it's like you can plan for for things, and then all of a sudden it gets evaporated. But but it's all the other stuff that was there still needed to get done. So, well, and speaking of things to get done, Ben, I don't know if you know this, but we we seem to have a very popular podcast where people send us oh, uh, questions that they want us to talk about, and then and then and then we we have snowstorms or other things, and there there's like there's a I think. A, and this is, you know, um, this is a technical term. There's like a bajillion oh. uh, uh, um, uh, amounts of listener feedback that we that we should talk about today. And and not only that, Ben, there's food safety in the news. There's there's food safety in the news. There's uh, listener feedback. There's um, things that we want to talk about. It's it's like we and we're and like you said, we're stacked up because we uh, we missed a week. And you know the like the mail, like for the, the Seinfeld <laughs> episode, the mail just keeps coming. It just keeps coming and coming, and we can't do anything about it. Um, so we uh, we better catch up. I, I have one. I, can I can I talk about one thing before we get to listener feedback? Sure. It's a. It's very. <laughs> just one thing. Just one thing. Just one thing. Before you get to listen it, to feedback. Well, it's very. It's it's uh it's one of our ongoing segments, and it's uh <laughs> it's an important one that we uh that, that I think last episode we might have uh, we might have skipped, but this is the uh, history ongoing history of Canadian cuisine. Oh, and nice. Yes, it, of course. We couldn't we couldn't forget our friends to the north. No, no, exactly. The uh, the hosers uh, true north uh, strong and free. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh I this this one it's I, I had to I I had to pick something that I thought was with was both festive, uh you know, represented the season and also was something that you might not have um you might not have heard about. And I know um you and I uh together and separately, we like to, you know, sometimes uh, consume some alcohol. Um we, we like to like to have a drink, like to have a beer, I like to have some wine. Uh you uh, a few years ago uh introduced me to bourbon uh, as well as a friend of the show Renee Boyer and so sometimes that's uh, my my drink Just of to choice. To be clear, I, I introduced you to bourbon and Renee introduced you to bourbon. I did not introduce you to Renee. True. You you I think you, you knew Renee before I did. You might have introduced Renee to me. It's probably that's okay. Fair enough. I may have I may have I had my, get that. my grammar was incorrect. So to clean up your grammar a little thank bit you. for the listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone needs an editor. Um so uh, anyway, today's uh, today's drink, today's uh, installment is a drink, and it's it's something. Oh, yeah, it's something called a Caesar. Yeah, uh, so it's a very it's a very festive drink because it's a red drink. Um, it uh, I guess technically known, although I've never referred to it this way, it is known as a Bloody Caesar, which is similar to a Bloody Mary. Um, that that you might um, know from uh, a brunch, uh, from some, some you know something that is served next to a, a mimosa, but a Caesar uh, is uh, vodka, 
um, and a blend of tomato juice and clam broth, also known as clamato juice, uh, a little bit of hot sauce, some uh, Worcestershire sauce, and uh, celery in a, in a big celery salt rimmed glass. And uh, and this is you know coming straight from from Wikipedia where where nothing is uh, is incorrect and it's always right, uh, and we can believe everything. But this this part is very true. Um, so uh, according to Wikipedia, what distinguishes uh, it, this drink, the Caesar from a Bloody Mary, is, is clam broth, and it's a little saltier and it's not as thick. It's a thinner kind of uh, vodka tomato clam clam broth drink. Um, it was invented in Calgary, uh, Alberta, uh, by restaurateur Walter Chell in 1969 to celebrate the opening of a new Italian restaurant. And uh, um, in Canada, this is, again, uh, it's a popular mixed drink where over 350 million Caesars are consumed annually. <laughs> it's a lot of Caesars. It sounds disgusting. It's it's actually I mean, fantastic. A bloody, a bloody Mary. Well, I'm I'm sure I'm sure it is fantastic. I think also a Bloody Mary sounds disgusting, but um, yeah, I uh, yeah, but whatever. Hey, you know, I thought you, I thought I was all excited. I thought you were going to give me a bourbon drink, but no, uh, we don't. No. We don't have any drink, bourbon drinks in Canada. Uh, it's we, not allowed. No, we we got uh, Cana- Canadian whiskey. Uh, <laughs> also Canadian known as Club, Canadian Club, and uh, and Crown Royal, also known as Rye. Except it's not really rye. That I've learned now, <laughs> now that I've started drinking bourbon, that there is actual rye that is different. Um, anyway, so uh, it's, a, it's a very festive drink. It's red. It comes with uh, celery, which makes it red and green for the holiday oh. season. Uh, and, and it's something that I did not I'm, – I'm, I'm not – like I'm not uh, – can't say that I've had too many. I'm not uh, consuming 350 million Caesars a year. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but I have had a, a, numerous times at uh, New Year's Eve parties. Uh, Caesar seems to be something that is constantly uh, produced, and uh, that's you know as we as we get close to New Year's Eve, go uh, enjoy a Caesar or a Bloody Caesar, uh, a Canadian drink. Okay. All right. Nice. So, so there we go. Uh, and I'm I'm quickly running out of. Uh, Canadian foods for the ongoing history of Canadian cuisine. So if our listeners have any that they uh, would like us to talk about, and I can tell stories about when I've consumed it, uh, I'd be happy to to do that. All right. All right. So moving on, there, there was method to my madness, Don. Okay. Because moving on from the Caesar is a segue to some feedback. Um, and the feedback comes from deep nog mm. and, uh, and, and by deep nog, we mean deep eggnog. So a uh, listener writes, um, years ago I made aged, made and aged boozy homemade eggnog to give his holiday gift, uh, to friends. I don't remember the proportions, but there were yolks from store-bought eggs, store-bought heavy cream, not raw sugar and copious amounts of 80 proof liquor, all thoroughly mixed together. I left it undisturbed in a second refrigerator. The refrigerator was in, un, infrequently open for six to eight weeks. My understanding at the time was that the volume of alcohol in the eggnog during this aging process virtually eliminated the likelihood of salmonella survival. Question, was this foolish? Uh, question number two, I remember reading that it should sit for at least six weeks. Do you feel that's an appropriate amount of time at either end of the scale? Um, provided the container is airtight and the refrigerator temperature is stable, is there an amount of time that would be too long? 
Are there other risks I should have considered? It was delicious, and there were no reports of illness. Happy holidays, deep nog. Um, so I, this is I'll I'll, uh, I'll tackle this one real quick, and I know you've already answered uh, deep nog via. Uh, email and you highlighted something um, <laughs> and I will read directly from your email which says and of course Chapman has already issued a press release four years ago in anticipation <laughs> of your question which is true so um, uh, friend of the show and uh, all around great guy uh, who we've talked about Matt Shipman works at NC State News Services who does a fantastic job um, making me look good and making others at NC State look good, uh, came to me a few years ago and said, hey, um, I really asked this question. What what effects do alcohol have on homemade eggnog if you're using making a traditional eggnog using a recipe that includes raw eggs? And so it was. Uh, it's kind of an interesting one to, to investigate um, because there there isn't a whole lot of exact data on this. Um, and there, there are a couple anecdotes, um, out there. And so as I dug into this, I found, um, uh, a, uh, a couple of papers, one that looked at, um, uh, antimicrobial effects of wine. And the reason why I looked at that, this was a, a really nice paper, um, that, uh, came from, um, Boban, uh, and, uh, and colleagues in 2010. Uh, the reason why I looked at this was, was it, the, the whole premise of this, um, uh, this paper was to take all of the uh, different parts of wine, polyphenols, pH, ethanol, and other components, and, and take a look at the antimicrobial properties. Oh, in the, by the way, before I answer this, in the background, you might hear some noise, Don. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, that's construction that's happening uh, because of our kitchens, which will be done on Friday. So there's uh, continued uh, construction. So hopefully our listeners won't get too upset. But that is the sound of, <laughs> that is the sound of progress. Um, well, and here's the thing, folks. Uh, if you didn't want the noise in the background, um, uh, you, you, you should have listened um, last week when we didn't record during a snowstorm. Right, and no one was working on anything at that point. Exactly. Uh, I believe that is a screw gun that is being used uh, right now as a chase in the wall is being um, uh, made three uh, offices down from mine, uh, oh which allows, goodness. yeah, al allows exhaust from a massive hood uh, to go outside of our building through the roof. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, on, so that was the first thing that I, that I, I kind of looked at and um, it was really interesting because at the concentration um, of like or po percent of alcohol in wine, somewhere around nine, ten percent. The alcohol on its own wasn't enough to um, real like have um, bacterial sidal effects. I guess is what people were looking for here. Um, and so, uh, but there was another. Um, uh, well, so in in that experiment, um, just the straight ethanol gave a one and a half log reduction in salmonella in 24 hours. Um, and so in, in deep Nog's question, he was really looking at a six week exposure to, to ethanol at a much higher concentration. And so um, there was some work that was done at Rockefeller university and it was never published. And it's really hard to kind of, I, I think you and I back in 2014, when I, when I did this, you and I had 
exchanged some emails on this, and we had talked about it on a previous um, podcast. And it was it's really hard to find what um, the researchers at Rockefeller University did. Uh, you, you know what's not hard to find? Tell me. Every, every year at this time, people talking about how people at Rockefeller University proved that eggnog was safe. Right. That's that's really easy to find. Yes. Yeah, that's really easy. Um, you can find it in an NPR, in uh, USA Today, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Um, and so I, I had to listen to a podcast to, um, from <laughs> – sorry. I think that the Rockefeller University is knocking at the door. Uh, <laughs> They're I, mad. They want their eggnog back. They, they want their eggnog back. Uh, so uh, microbiologist Vince Fischetti uh, talked to NPR about this. So I listened to the podcast and figured out um, what the recipe was. And I figured out that even there, they they all what they had was a 14% alcohol content um, and refrigerated during the aging process. And what they said was it reduces salmonella. <laughs> it didn't yeah. – and – and so uh, it, there wasn't – it's not really, really um, well-defined. So, um, you know, when I looked at it, uh, the, the, the egg-milk ratio is something that I don't know uh, so much about in different recipes. And uh, if we held it for six weeks versus 10 weeks versus one week versus two you know, 24 hours or 60 minutes, what the difference is. is essentially, what I came down with, what, what I came down to was alcohol has some effect. It's not the same as cooking eggs. <laughs> and right. it's somewhere it's somewhere less than that, and it's better than doing nothing. Um, but but I don't think there's really great great data on this. Well, and we don't know the effect of adding cream to the mixture, right? I, that's Absolutely. you know generally when it comes to cooking, fat has a <clears throat> has a protective effect. Um, uh, we don't know the effect of adding sugar. Um, you know, it's anyway. It's the the problem is it's not it's the effects are not are not clear cut. And so the recommendation, which is which is you know the 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 FDA recommendation, which we'll link to, is um, like don't don't eat eggnog made from raw eggs, right? Um, yeah, so it's it turns out it's complicated, Ben, and it depends. Right, right, right. Well, <laughs> I never would have guessed that. Yeah. And I always like to point out now, since we've uh, talked about this a little bit, uh, if you're eating eggs in the UK, the Food Safety Authority or no Food Safety Agency, whatever their um, actual name, the FSA, would say, uh, "Don't worry about it," because the risk of uh, salmonella in our raw eggs is very, very low. When it's probably the risk of salmonella in raw eggs here in the US, it's very similar, um, and. Uh, it it is all a risk management decision, um, and and that's and we're going to come back to this I think later on when we talk a little bit about cookie dough, um, but it's the same kind of thing. These these are all um, as you said, it's complicated. It depends. These are all calculations, and there's there's no um, there's we there's no clear cut like yeah you won't get salmonella from this. There's going to be a risk every time you you do it. It just might be that it's very 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 low. Well, and and what does that even mean, right? And so, what what really what would be a great thing to do now is, and we're getting we're coming up to New Year's, is you know make a New Year's resolution if you're a food safety scientist to over the next year actually do some research with eggnog and then publish a paper and then issue a press release before Christmas time next year, and then maybe you'll be more famous than those bastards at Rockefeller University who apparently published their research on a podcast. <laughs> we should do this. We yeah, might, we should. I we might. Should. 
should. I totally should. Don, I might have kitchens that we could do this in soon. If you, <laughs> as soon as as soon as that screw gun's done, we should get. Well, I could walk down there. Well, I think I think though it's a little more complicated than that because probably we don't want to put salmonella in your kitchens. I oh. think this might be better done in the laboratory, but you know that's just me. Whatever. And then I'm gonna we'll bring in people uh, and say make the eggnog that you want to make. Be you be you be be best <laughs> be be your best eggnog. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks to uh, um, uh, Deep Nog for that question, and uh, and it's it. it I think you're you're exactly right, Don. It's a good one, and um, we can lament about not having data, but we could actually go out and and get some data on this. So so that's that's a new New Year's resolution. I like it. Um, next piece of piece of feedback uh, came from a couple of listeners uh, who we know on on Twitter, and um, I don't know if they wanted to be revealed, but essentially we talked in the previous episode about. Um, uh, a a guy a Twitter a Twitter guy, uh, Doctor Eugene Gu MD, and um, we talked about his uh, food safety stuff a little bit and thought that he got something wrong. Started following him, and then uh, we didn't know sort of the backstory. Uh, neither of us I didn't know this, and I don't think you did uh, about him because we didn't talk about it. But it turns out he might not be a very great person, um, and has had a whole bunch of. Uh, you know, uh, issues raised about them, and it's a really interesting um, story out there. So check into uh, Eugene Gu, and I think we'll uh, post some links on on uh, on the podcast uh, note page. Yeah, and he, um, he he's been he's been so he was tweeting recently again about, um, and we're not going to link to his Twitter account, so you know I, I don't want to promote him, but yeah. go, you know go go you can go search for him if you want. But he was he was. Tw- tweeting again about this romaine outbreak saying that he was right and that he was calling out snopes for saying that he was wrong and uh i think that snopes is right and he's wrong so uh, but you know again and <clears throat> this came up in another situation where somebody pointed me at a twitter thread like i'm i'm not gonna get in i i've decided it's not worth getting in a twitter fight with somebody that has orders of magnitude more followers than me trying to correct them about something you know some pedantic point of food safety that they're wrong on see, see earlier discussions with um chef uh, kenji um which oh. just did not did not end well um, oh he's for, coming for back me or i and oh yeah well we, i got some no i got notes oh, that we're gonna K- get kenji, to kenji. kenji follow up yeah, okay. yeah kenji follow up so yeah, so uh, anyway, we'll we'll figure out something to to link to uh, that that points people in the direction of uh, Dr. Gu, but but not uh, but not link to his Twitter directly. Yeah, he just it doesn't seem like a very nice person. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that, that's that's I think that's I think you're right. I think that that is exactly right. He does not seem like a very nice person. Um, so uh, all right, <clears throat> where 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 should we go for some more follow up here, Don? Um, well, let's let's just keep cranking down uh, the list. This is uh, this is one from um, Deep Soda, um, and so uh, Deep Soda says uh, human tooth sends us a link to an article uh, <laughs> that says uh, human tooth found in a food blender sparks grisly murder investigation, um, <clears throat> and I'm not quite uh, quite sure. 
um, why uh, why I thought this was a good idea to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, now we're into it, and there's only one way out, and that is through. So uh, this is a friend of the pod, uh, uh, Jason, um, a podcast, excuse me, I misspoke, um, uh, Jason, uh, who we refer to as Deep Soda. Um, so he will we'll link. This is an article from a, a horrible, a horrible website whose name I don't even remember, but um, uh, and it's not listed anywhere on this page I'm looking at. I will read to you from the story. Um, a woman has been accused of killing her lover, butchering his body, and then serving up his remains to people in the United Arab Emirates. This bizarre story of jilted love and criminality recent came, recently came to the attention of police thanks to a human tooth found in a blender and some DNA analysis. What do you think, Ben? Is it a good idea to kill someone and, and grind them up in a blender and then leave a tooth behind? I, I, there's, I mean, I think that... I think I think that entire premise is a bit problematic. I think we should not kill people. Um, first, first of all, uh, for not killing people. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm definitely coming out on the don't let's not kill people uh, side of this debate. Um, and uh, and then grinding them up, uh, kind of terrible. So this, I, I don't know. This might be why you put this in because it is from a terrible. Um, website and again, I don't know who uh, where it's from, but I want to read the last two paragraphs of this this article <laughs> because this is what really caught my attention. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from the fairly obvious ethical conundrums, <laughs> and, ethical, yeah, yes. and legal problems of eating human flesh, um, and this is where I think this article takes a turn for the worst. Cannibalism is not considered a good idea, scientifically speaking. For one, it's not particularly nutritious. Compared to other animals commonly eaten across the world, whether it's cow, pig, chicken, goat, or lamb, the body of a human contains notably less fewer calories per gram. <laughs> I just I think this is a bizarre thing to write. I don't think that's true, Ben. I I, I think it's the same. It's roughly the same, I, right? I would I, I would think so too. And are we like look like when you look at isn't it protein? Anyway, what are we worried about calories in if you're eating humans? I don't know. Um, the other thing here is it's also potentially dangerous. Along with the risks of bloodborne diseases or pathogens associated with food poisoning, human cannibalism comes with the unusual threat of mysterious infectious agents called prions. These are an abnormal form of usually harmless protein found in the brain that can trigger normal proteins to fold abnormally. And this is one that, that caught my eye because this is the premise of um, BSE, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, also known as mad cow disease, which, uh, when I was in graduate school was a notable disease in my laboratory because, uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, Doug Powell wrote a, a, a book called, uh, mad cows and mother's milk. Um, and there was a, a case of BSE happening in Canada, uh, in 2003 that, that dominated the news and food safety stuff for like a year. Anyway, the thing is that this is a little bit of a stretch because eating human flesh and eating human brains are different. Um, both mm-hmm. are both are bad. Only one really uh, increases the risk of prions. And there is there was a um, like an Aboriginal um, uh, tribe somewhere, and I, I'll see if I can find this, but uh, that had typically eaten human brains and had a higher portion, a higher uh, a uh, higher chance of, of prion disease because of that. Um, yeah. So this is, <clears throat> this is, we're talking about a disease called Kuru and yes. this is, uh, this is, uh, there, this is a 
part of a ritual uh, practice of ritual cannibalism practiced in, by one Papua New Guinea tribe, and it is uh, and it was and it, this cannibalism is not the kind that is depicted um, on the the kind of shows that I watched as a kid growing or movies that I watched um, with cannibals in the jungle. Um, uh, Those are problematic, kid. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's there's, that's a whole another area of problematic um, uh, racism uh, and, and and cultural uh, ism, if that's even a word. But basically, this tribe practiced this ritual cannibalism as a sign of respect. So you you ate the brains of your um, your ancestors um, when they died because that's you know that was a that was a, a again a sign of your respect. So yeah. Yeah, it's it. This is it's a fascinating um, sort of case study, and from a food like from a food safety and biology standpoint, I think a lot of what we know about prions came from the investigation of this uh, this disease in um, you know back in the '60s and '70s. Um, so check, yeah, check it out. So here's, uh, again, from the Wikipedia page in 1961, Australian Michael Alpers conducted extensive field studies, um, and, uh, historical research suggests the epidemic of this disease may have originated, originated around 1900 from a single individual who lived on the edge of the four territory who is thought to have spontaneously developed some, some form of Kreitzfeld Jakob disease, which is the human form uh, uh, of, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, sort of, it's, it's a, it's a brain disease. It's caused by prions. Some way you can get it from consuming these prions. And other times there are just spontaneous misfolding of, of proteins that, that lead to these prions. It is like a very fascinating biological system. Would you just to think of, um, you know, we we think of pathogens in in the form of um, you know viruses that aren't really living things, but are things that are able to replicate that are that have DNA or RNA and and bacteria obviously are living and and have um, you know uh, DNA and uh, and are able to replicate during infection. This is a situation where it's like you consume this protein and that tricks other um, your own cells to make more of this protein, and it's it's like completely fascinating to me. Um, and so reading about this when I was in graduate school and, and even before it, it is just one of those like marvels of, of biology that I, that I, I still, uh, I'm still, uh, impressed by today. Yeah. And, and in Googling this, I, I came across an article, um, on the, the webpage for live science, which links to some, uh, and again, you will we'll link to the live science page. You can dig in deep, deeper if you want, but basically, um, there apparently are some people in that tribe now that have a gene that is protective against Kuru. So, um, it's, it's really quite, uh, it's quite, it's quite fascinating. And, uh, and yeah, and, and the organism it's, or not even organism, the, the protein itself and the whole mechanism by how it was discovered is, is fascinating. So yeah, good. So I thought you were, when you started off, you said, well, this is a, a disease that was notable in my laboratory. And I'm like, <laughs> really? How many people in your laboratory had this disease? But it was just a notable <laughs> topic for discussion because of uh, mad, cows and mother, uh, mad cows and mother's milk. So. That's right. There are other diseases that I'm sure were notable in my laboratory. <laughs> probably, that's for a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to we got we got a really nice message um, from uh, someone that I think we'll call uh, you know, that you've already named uh, Deep EPC uh, and EPC stands for Emergency Preparedness Coordinator, um, and so 
Um, I'll, uh, I'll read from the email. I just started listening to episode 164 where you talk about the effects of a hurricane. I'm an emergency preparedness coordinator in my state. This is a county or district level position based out of a health department that works alongside emergency management, hospital, and long-term, uh, calf, long-term care staff, first responders, local government, and other preparedness professionals. When a disaster strikes, relevant individuals be called into the emergency operations center to coordinate disaster response. While fortunately I do not live in a state where hurricanes hit, I've learned a great deal about emergency preparedness and response from mentors um, and uh, trainers who do. Um, and so uh, uh, deep, deep EPC goes on to write, from the preparedness and aftermath site, a community assessment for public health emergency response, or CASPER, is an epidemiologic uh, technique designed to provide quick at, and at low cost household-based information about a community. This could have been done beforehand to assess what types of media individuals in the affected uh, county most commonly use if they had an emergency kit that in included at least a three-day supply of food and water. Um, and, and, you know, essentially, what what do um, uh, individuals in that community have? Um, and so this assessment helps people understand uh, you know, those those responders where they need to put their resources and what's the what's the kind of um, uh, uh, starting point. Um, uh, it, so, um, DPPC also, uh, goes on to talk about in terms of distribution of materials and educational, uh, materials, EPCs work closely with other organizations to develop a points of distribution site, um, that are located in essentially in communities throughout their county or district. They can be activated to, to distribute um, uh, prophylaxis, water, other needed materials, depending on the crisis. However, staffing can be an issue. Um, and then uh, she, uh, she goes on to say, nevertheless, as you mentioned, activation of these, these resources can have lasting impacts on their communities. For instance, your children not being able to go back to school because their school is a shelter location. As such, it's crucial to consider the duration of the disaster when opening shelters or PODs, um, and that's the points of distribution, um, and how that extended activation may impact the surrounding communities. Um, so anyway, thanks for, uh, the follow-up from, uh, deep, uh, EPC. Um, it is, I, I think the, the thing that I wanted to glean and, and, um, connect our listeners to is I'm sure there are stakeholders, uh, for emergency preparedness and response, uh, who do listen to the podcast who may not know about these, um, emergency preparedness coordinator, um, uh, positions and the professionals that, that do this work. So being able to um, check out um, the, you know, those emergency operations center, whoever runs those and, um, you know, either lend a hand or, or get involved uh, prior to um, or um, during response. And, you know, I think this is a good information to share, especially for folks like, like you and I who have uh, a, 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 a tiny slice of expertise um, in this area. So um, I was, uh, I'm a little bit familiar with the emergency pre preparedness coordinators because uh, many of the extension agents that I, um, that I support, the uh, family and consumer science agents are involved in, uh, in these um, uh, local operations because extensions, are, uh, at least in our state, are a really strong partner of um, the response uh, to, to hurricanes and other disasters. 
Yeah, and we will, we will link to the CDC page on CASPER, the Community Assessment for Public Health Emergency Response, which is a really interesting uh, page. You should take a look at it. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting. I Googled, I just Googled Emergency Preparedness Coordinator, and actually most of the hits that turn up are around uh, jobs and people wanting to wanting to apparently uh, become or are interested in, in learning about what uh, how, how one can become an Emergency Preparedness Coordinator. It sounds like, especially in these times of, uh, you know, increased natural disasters. Um, it sounds like a really cool and interesting and, and important job. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, so, uh, we've got, uh, we've got another, uh, piece of feedback from, uh, deep bleach, um, and, uh, deep bleach rights, uh, which is always nice to hear. I love your podcast. Thank you for oh, making, thank you. Deep bleach. Thank you. Deep bleach. Uh, thank you for making our chosen profession of food safety, um, which is always important and relevant, but sometimes a bit dry, more entertaining on your most recent podcast, pants, pants, pants. I'm sure the discussion about uh, inspectors who bleach food intended for the homeless has spurred many comments. This is such a difficult situation, which clearly was not handled as, as deftly as it should have been, although how it should have been handled is not easy to agree upon. Raises two mm. specific questions with me, primarily because of my hatred for seeing any food go to waste. Um, uh, one, am I correct that the inspector's concern was not for, for the quality of the food spoilage, but the safety of the food, lack of contamination? If this is the case, would simply recooking the food to an appropriate temperature, while it may have made the food far less palatable, make the food safe to eat so that people who are food insecure could at least consume the calories, even if the food doesn't taste great? Um, and two, couldn't this be food or couldn't this food be used uh, to feed shelter animals? I can understand not wanting to introduce it into the food chain, but aren't the domesticated animals much more tolerant of contaminants than humans? Or three questions really for the price of two. Is there some other way you can think in which the food can be used for some benefit and not bleached? Um, uh, if you read all this on the podcast, I can be deep bleach, even though I gave you my name, uh, just cause I think that would be awesome. And we think it was awesome too. So deep bleach. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, in case you guys haven't figured it out, um, you get a you get a code name <laughs> whether you give us your name or not, just because that's just how we roll. Um, yeah, so I, I and I took a stab uh, at answering uh, Deep Leach's questions, um, uh, and then I'll, so I'll talk for a little bit, and then uh, you can give me your feedback. Um, I think uh, yes, I, my imp impression of the situation is that the inspector was concerned about food safety, not about food spoilage. Um, and of course, yes, recooking um, would have helped reduce the risk, but remember. Uh, there are microorganisms like Staphylococcus and Bacillus that make heat-stable toxins, and if you get formation of those toxins in the food, reheating is not is not going to help. Um, just as an interesting aside, uh, the topic of staphylococcal for toxin formation has come up recently. Uh, across my across my desk um, in a couple of different ways uh, because because of the Food Safety Modernization Act companies uh, that are have certain practices that might lead to the formation of staphylococcal toxin are being asked to develop um, you know either prove that their handling procedures are such that you don't get staph formation um, or uh, come up with some some mitigation so even though you know we we might think of staphylococcal food poisoning food poisoning as an old issue that's been solved it it continues to go on just because of this ability to form the 
this heat-stable toxin. And so the question in this particular case was, given the uncertainties about how this food was handled, could you have had, yes, you could have rendered it safe um, from many vegetative pathogens by reheating, but it, it, you know, the question is, could you have got, could you have Staphylococcal bacillus um, uh, food poisoning uh, from toxin formation? Um, a comment about shelter animals is a good one. It's it's not something that had occurred to me, um, but it's a, it's a very clever solution. Um, I don't I don't know a whole lot about foodborne disease in animals. I do know that for some organisms, and I still remember when the light bulb went on for this for me. I was actually at a seminar. Um, at Cornell University, I was visiting my colleague Carl Batt, and he had at that time a, a young uh, uh, a PhD student by the name of Martin Viedman. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Dr. Viedman, but at one point uh, he was a PhD student in Carl's lab. And I'm he, familiar. You're familiar? I'm you've familiar heard his work? I've heard familiar with his work. Yeah, I'm familiar with his work. Um, uh, and, uh, and yeah, we, we got into a really interesting discussion about the nature of organisms and the fact that there are organisms that will make people sick that won't make animals sick um, and vice versa. And it has to do with receptors. In part, it has to do with receptors in the gut of the animal. But um, so um, so the, the short answer is, again, we don't, we don't really – something that makes a person sick might make an animal sick. And again, I, depending on the nature of the, the, uh, the toxins, again, if it's a, if it's staphylococcal or bacillus toxin, again, I don't know enough about the mechanism of how those cause disease, but I've got to imagine, uh, response in animals is less diverse than it might be for an infectious organism. Um, but again, that's just simply my, my speculation. So, uh, bottom line is a conservative approach, uh, which is of course what always, what these inspectors are doing. A conservative approach would, uh, would say if it's not safe for people, it's not safe for animals either. Um, what I think, uh, the inspector should have done would have been to, and this has come out in, in subsequent conversations on social media, and we might've even talked about it on the podcast, what the inspector should have done, in my opinion, would have been to have a conversation with the volunteer and get some more information. How is the food prepared? How is it transported? We know it's prepared prepared in the home, and we know it was transported in um, a vehicle, not refrigerated. But the devil is in the details there, right? So, so how did you prepare? What is the na- what is the nature of the food, right? pH, water activity. Um, how is it prepared? How is it transported? How long did it take for it to be transported? And then have a informed, you know, make an informed judgment about the actual level of risk versus strict adherence to the food code, right? Because yeah, you can, you can come in with strict adherence to the food code and you can walk into a restaurant or a store and take a temperature uh, of a food product and find that it's 45 or 46 degrees Fahrenheit and say, well, this is not in compliance with the code. You have to throw this food out. But, but that's, but that's silly, right? I mean that, yes, you, you could, you could be right in terms of the code, because the code is written to be black and white. But again, as we so often point out on this podcast, the the world is full of of shades of gray. And so what the inspector should have done, I think, would have been to have that discussion, get into the shades of gray, and then try to reach a consensus that that basically protected public health, of these homeless people, but at the same time, um, you know, so treated, treated them appropriately, it protected public health, but, but, and, you know, and again, the whole, the whole thing with, well, I'm going to throw the food away. Well, I'm going to get it out of the trash. Well, I'm going to pour bleach on it. That's just an an escalation that doesn't really help anyone. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that's my, that's my two cents on all that. Yeah. And I I thought quite a bit about this um, since we talked about it. um, I think it was in pants, pants, pants in the last, last podcast um, a little bit. And, when I, I I'm gonna 
back up and, and say something that I've been talking about a lot when I um, do media interviews about restaurant inspections. And that's uh, over the almost 20 years that I've been in the food safety world, which is kind of fun to say now that I'm like, I'm, I'm old. Um, I'm getting old. Uh, the, I've, I've seen a, a change in how, um, our, our public health friends or environmental health officers, health inspectors in, in Canada and elsewhere in the world, um, approach food safety on this very micro scale, no pun intended, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're out there and you're, they, they are in, um, they are being asked to look at something and, and figure out what's the risk. And that's a stark difference from when I think I got into things, um, 20 years ago where the, the focus was, what does the rule say? And if the rule says X, then we have to do Y and um, and and it's it, it some of this stuff becomes even more complicated than than the science with what's the local what's the local philosophy in this how how is food regulated in you know in Denver versus Raleigh North Carolina versus Wilson North Carolina you know versus wherever um, and what does that local health department think. Uh, you know, what's their philosophy? Is their philosophy to do exactly what you said, Don? And let's take a look at what the risk is, and then let's make the the best decision um, on food safety. Or are they? Hey, it's in the rule, and um, and I we we don't either want to look at the risk uh, of it. Like we don't want to make a call because maybe we don't have the resources to do that, or we don't have the expertise, or we haven't had the training on how to uh, correctly do that. And so it's, it's easier um, maybe to just say, okay, well, it's outside of the rule, so we're going to dispose of it um, and, versus, okay, let's, let's actually look at, at the risk. But I, I'm the encouraging part for me is that that is um it's, it's, I, I don't even think it's slowly changing. I think it's like quickly changing. The types of questions that you and I get um, by podcast listeners and interactions that we have with environmental health officers it, are very much tell me more about the risks. And, and I think it's just a different, um, a different generation of, of environmental health officers. And it's not ge- like when I say generation, it's not an age thing. I think it's just a different overall philosophy of tell me, tell me more about w- why we're regulating these things the way that we're regulating them. And then give me the leeway to make a call on this. Um, but that's a, that's, just, you know, a state by state, local authority by local authority decision. And, and I, you know, I, I don't think we've seen enough in the coverage about that, right? And I don't think we have enough local knowledge of, um, of you know, the decision making um, in you know in this in this case in, in Kansas City or, you know, where I think it was I think it was Kansas City, right? Um, yes. Yeah. So, I uh, what the what the public health philosophy of the Department of Health is in in Kansas City, and that's um, I, I would be interested to hear more about that. Yeah, and you know, it reminds me all of our discussions about food safety culture and how important food safety culture is. It makes me think, and God, I I don't want to create another another uh, thing like food safety culture to say public health culture, but really that's what it is, right? It's it's what is what are the the key drivers of our public health decisions, and and from a from a food safety culture point of view, the public health culture might be different because of necessity. And again, I think that this example with feeding homeless people is is a is a is a perfect a perfect 
uh, example of like, well, we're talking about risk, risk trade-off, right? Here's a person who is in danger. Um, well, they're, they're living on the streets, right? They're in danger of being undernourished. Um, here's a person who's trying to do the right thing by giving them food. And then here's a regulator who's trying to enforce the law. And, and there is like, there's trade-offs there, right? It's not, it's not all like black and white. It's not all about food safety. It's about, it's about protecting public health, which in this case might mean um, feeding somebody food that uh, that is was not produced in adherence with the code, right? Right, right, exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, this is you know, and it's 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 very it's very heartening. Actually, it's been very heartening to see the feedback from people, to have the online discussions with people, to get feedback from uh, on the podcast about about these kind of issues. Because that's, I mean, that to me, again, it's you know, it's it's become a a little a little tripe, but that's why we do the podcast, right? Because it's not black and white, and we should talk about the shades of gray, and we should talk about why there's differences of opinion. And yes, we need a food code uh, that gives us bright lines, right? But because that's the way that laws work and, and regulations work. But but guess what? You know, it's it's at least for people that like you and me and people that that listen to the podcast, it's 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 the the shades of gray are what's make it interesting, right? Right. And, oh. and, and I, and I love questioning conventional wisdom. Right. Uh, and I love to, you know, I mean, again, all of this talk about food cooking temperatures, it's like, well, that, all, that's a number, right. And that number is based on a whole bunch of assumptions that people that are, use those numbers all the time don't think about. And, and, it, and, it, and as a guy who does work in that area that I have to think about that. Right. It's, I, it's just, I just, that's just, just become the way my brain works now. Yeah, no, it, I, absolutely, and I think that that's the, like as you said, that's really the fun of it. That's the the stuff that, the stuff that I get excited about is the messy stuff, and and what you know whether it's I kind of use this when I when I talk to, um, you know, students or someone who's like, oh, what is it? What do you do? What's your what does your lab do? And it's like I like things like, um, farmers markets and food pantries and school gardens and how do you do food safety there because. Um, it's messy. It's not, it's real, it's real life, but it is, uh, um, there are questions, everything's different. There's so much variability, um, in, in how people approach things. And if, if, if we can create something here or learn something about those systems that can help make food a little bit safer in there, then I'm, I'm super happy about it. But I, I would, I, and th this is not a knock on, on our colleagues that, that do, other types of work, but I'm not really interested in like, um, in, in really, um, formulaic systems and how to, how to manage food safety in a, in a very like controlled processing environment in, in, in like, um, you know, uh, validated recipes or, or something like that. I I'm interested in the messy, in the messy part of, of, of it. And, and, you know, and sometimes the, the you know, the, yeah. Sometimes validating those recipes can be messy, um, but I, I I like that it's that the entire system is messy. Well, and and let's let's segue to some listener feedback uh, that could potentially be messy, but I think we've we've come up. I, I think I, we were able to come up with a fairly definitive answer. And so this is uh, this is from uh, listener Logan, who says uh, share all details freely. Uh, maybe we'll call him. I didn't give him a nickname in the email, but maybe we call him Deep T. He says uh, hi, Don and Ben. Your podcast got me wondering about the microbes present in a favorite tea of mine, a fermented Chinese tea called. 
Pura. That's P-U-E-R-H. I, I don't think I'm saying that right. He says, uh, anyway, uh, he goes on. I stumbled across a couple of recent papers showing mycotoxins can be found in some samples of this tea at levels beyond that allowed by the FDA in products like apple juice. The traditional brewing method for these teas calls for a uh, first Fifth, 10 to 15 second brew in boiling water, which is discarded before subsequent brews are drunk. Would this practice be enough to remove any toxins from the tea before the later brews are drunk? Um, and uh, yeah, he says, and for extra content, the pura would usually be brewed from flakes or chunks taken off a compressed cake, not loose leaves. Um, anyway, he goes, he gives a, a link uh, to some papers. It says, thanks for your time. Um, so my my go-to reference every time somebody uh, mentions uh, something like this to me is the amazing uh, ICMSF um, Microorganisms in Food Volume 5, Characteristics of Microbial Pathogens. And this is a book that um, – uh, oh, what's his name? Terry, uh, Terry Roberts, um, of predictive food microbiology fame. Um, when, when Terry was on ICMS, ICMSF, um, he shepherded this book through and it was apparently very traumatic for all of the members of ICMSF because this was, this is basically a book of literally table after table after table with, uh, growth and death characteristics for multiple, uh, microorganisms. And it's a great book. Um, it's almost $300 in, in hardcover. I actually own, uh, two copies, one for home and one for work, uh, because this is just, there, there's just no substitute for this book. And unfortunately it came out um, uh, in 1996, and it has not been updated, and it will never be updated, according to people I know on ICMSF, um, because it's just so much work. But it, but it's a great deep dive into the into the literature. And so, basically, um, uh, I didn't I didn't look for multiple mycotoxins, but I started with aflatoxin, and I found enough uh, to basically say that. Um, to basically be able to tell Logan that boiling um, for 10 to 15 seconds or uh, treating with 10 to 15 seconds in boiling water is only going to have a very slight effect. Uh, basically, data from the book shows that um, if you boil uh, aflatoxin for many minutes, um, you're only going to see about a 50 percent reduction. And so where does that leave Listener Logan, um, uh, the advice, my advice is if you want to keep consuming this tea, uh, you should buy uh, from a reputable, produ reputable producer and don't consume any product that looks or smells obviously uh, moldy. So um, good question. Um, I think that the – again, you know, what? so the, I guess maybe the more nuanced – thing is, is this risky? And the answer would be, well, kind of. Um, but um, uh, can you mitigate that risk with boiling? And the answer is no. Right, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So uh, consume at your own risk. Um, you know, don't don't consume moldy tea. Um, uh, yeah, and, and just, and just be, be careful and, and realize that, uh, you know, the tea that comes into this country, it's, you know, nominally has to be produced under us food safety standards, but, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't get product in this country that, that, that contained, uh, molds and, and there, and there's definitely, definitely a risk there. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that's my, that's my feedback. So maybe a, a, a clear answer to, to an unclear, uh, 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 issue of risk, of risk. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and my um, when you you were telling sort of the story of going through that, my um, most recent I guess exposure to the world of 
um, mycotoxins and aflatoxin was a, a trip that I took to uh, Guatemala a few years ago um, that uh, you know, a friend of the show, Michelle Daniluk, and I uh, went with uh, a couple of folks from RTI um, and at the time uh, Barb Kowalchuk and um, uh, Ellen Thomas. Um, and the, you know, we, we were there doing microbial food safety stuff and talking about FSMA and produce. Um, but we met with a couple of researchers who were doing work on mycotoxins in the corn, um, uh, in corn meal and corn flour. And, um, from a nutrition standpoint, just the effects of, uh, mycotoxin, um, on, um, uh, kids as they were growing up and, and just sort of looking at public health effects. But it, it really came down to, um, you know, as we were talking with people about like what, what they're doing to, to try and control it, it, it really is about having good standard operating procedures in the drying and storage of, of corn. And that's, uh, that's difficult when you don't have a lot of infrastructure. And I, I, it's analogous, I think probably to, to tea, um, where it, the the uh, the issue you know, the exposure happens at the consumer level but as as you said in your answer there's not a whole lot you can do because the the uh, growth and um, issues related to um, increasing risk all happened well before it got to you and and so it's right. it's a it's a real tough one it's I mean it's like it's like fresh produce in in uh, yep. in, in the same way so it's yeah it's kind of like we don't there's there's not a really good answer other than like you said trying to buy from folks that know how to manage humidity and keep mycotoxins out of them in the first place yeah ex- ex- exactly and uh, so we'll link to we'll link to the Wikipedia page um, I, I do want to say um, that uh, one thing I know for sure is the Wikipedia page uh, calls it p u apostrophe e r t it is sometimes pe- spelled p u e r h uh, but if you search Wikipedia for p u e r h it it uh, uh, brings up a page for pure h which is a Slovenian electronic musical group which Ooh. I don't recommend I don't re- recommend making them into t because um, that would that would uh, make them very unhappy and uh, probably wouldn't taste that good. Although it might be mycotoxin free, but you might get prions. So right, right. So when I Google Pure H, my uh, Google um, auto fills with a, a website that I have uh, visited many times called Pure Hockey. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I just tried to find Pure H and I got to Pure Hockey. Uh, well, see now I'm gonna pollute my uh, my Google sphere by uh, uh, going to pure hockey too. So, yeah. oh, except I typed pure ho- hockey with no e, but it it it, it found uh, pure hockey with uh, uh, with uh, with an e. So pure hockey, hockey skates, pure hockey. I think I'm gonna get into pure H here. These are my these are my like this these are my right. peeps in your wheelhouse. Yeah, pure H is an artist group formed in 1993 <laughs> when the first clips inertia appeared. Before that, members were gathering experiences in several punk noise metal and grindcore bands. So I'm I'm that's my I I think I can I can handle this. I like I like a little bit of grindcore. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure, go for it. Sure you do. Yeah, grind grindcore all you want. Um, um, yeah. All right. You go, you go. Yeah. So, um, uh, so this one is entitled, uh, St. Pete, Romaine and Lobster for some reason. Uh, uh, and this comes from, um, 
Stephen, who says, please share all details freely. Um, uh, I, I didn't get this to you in time for the romaine lettuce outbreak, but I'd still be curious to hear your take on this article titled, Amid E. coli Warning, St. Pete Farmers Provide Worry-Free Romaine. Um, and if you're short on comedy relief, here is a food poisoning case that went to court. Lobster Haven admitted it served the couple's seafood that poisoned them, but denied that it caused Guillain-Barre syndrome, blaming instead a lamb that Mr. Martinez slaughtered and ate days later. So um, I, I just, uh, some, so I try often when listeners send us feedback, I often try to send um, a detailed response um, in answer to their questions. Uh, what I did for Stephen uh, was to do no such thing. I said, thanks so much for the links. This looks great. Um, we will be uh, uh, plan to discuss in episode uh, 171, which records on December 10th. I saw, I told many people that we would discuss, <laughs> we would discuss their, um, uh, their, their feedback on episode 171, which records on December 10th. Well, I, w I want the record to show that we are recording 171 and it is not December 10th. So my apologies, it's December 18th, but there was a snowstorm as we discussed. So, um, so what do you, uh, and the, the link is not working cause it's truncated from mail. So uh, what are, let's, let's wade into this, Ben, because this whole idea of, uh, romaine lettuce and labeling your romaine, uh, based on where it came from is certainly been in the news and, and, and Pete's message, um, give, or Pete, sorry, Pete, um, sorry, sorry, uh, Steve, Stephen, um, uh, from St. Pete, he's not from St. Pete, but he linked to a story from St. Pete. So, so what, Ben, what are your thoughts? on this whole issue of geographic location, the romaine lettuce outbreak. Um, do you think, uh, do you think that St. Pete farmers are providing worry-free romaine and, uh, would you eat it? Hello? Did I lose you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I muted my microphone for, um, uh, reasons of construction. And then I started talking and I didn't turn it back <laughs> on. Um, and then I was like, I was like full into to a response. I, oh dear. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm glad you stopped me cause I would have just kept talking and with no, with dead air. Uh, no. So, uh, worry-free and risk-free might be two different things. Yes. Um, and, uh, but I, this article is really interesting because there are two things. One is location and geography. And two is the, the process of how these particular farmers are growing, uh, lettuce. And so from the article, uh, O'Malley, uh, Shannon O'Malley, who's the owner of Brick Street Farms, um, they, uh, she uh, owns and operates a hydroponic full-scale farm out of several repurposed shipping containers near Tropicana Field. O'Malley says, and this is maybe my favorite quote, her lettuce is grown without dirt in a, quote, highly sterile environment and that there's no risk. Um, she says her business is surging. I, I do not disagree that her business is surging. I would disagree that um, shipping containers would be a highly sterile environment. Um, any food production area is, is not um, a highly st sterile environment. And as, uh, you have, uh, as is the sub-sub uh, uh, um, uh, title for all of our episodes, there is no such thing as no risk. So right. it's, it's, it depends and it's complicated and there is no such thing as no risk. So, but, uh, but, but Ben, but Ben, she said there's no dirt, no bugs, no chemicals, no pesticides, no fertilizers, no animal products. That's correct. Those are correct. Uh, but <laughs> there is risk. Oh, uh, well, and, and here's the, the thing about it. I, I, I you know, I've, I've got some experience in the hydroponic growing 
um, world. And that sounds weird, especially since uh, marijuana was legalized in Canada recently. <laughs> but it was about tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and lettuce. Um, you know, I talked before on the podcast about my graduate work. Um, I, I started in food safety uh, in um, doing food safety and investigating contamination in hydroponic growing um, uh, areas. And whether it's a shipping container or a big warehouse or a greenhouse that was grown uh, or that was that was created directly for um, for food, um, it, it is it, there are risks. There are people out there, there are birds. There, um, you know, the the seeds have uh, um, have potential for uh, contamination. We, um, I talked with a with a retailer who will be um, who will remain nameless, but we'll call this retailer Deep Retail uh, about uh, this exact kind of system, um, and he was investigating it for um, it's small trailers that would sit outside of. Um, retail stores that would be like living um, uh, farms, and and the idea was, hey, we're going to put these outside so people can buy the food, but also they can walk through this this um, you know, trailer type setup and see our hydroponic systems. And he uh, you, he and I talked about this. Um, I shared a bunch of literature on hydroponic systems and managing them and pathogen potential in, in hydroponic water and um, cleaning and sterile, uh, cleaning and sanitizing. And, and essentially, through all the stuff and the conversations that we had, he said, oh, our people can't manage this. Like, we don't we, – we're trained in food safety, but the risk of doing this and it, from a food safety standpoint is too much for us to take. And so I, I'm, I think that um, geographically, um, the way that I've addressed this question uh, of, you know, is there no worry about, um, you know, when can I eat romaine again? And, and what, you know, what is this uh, issue about romaine that's not coming from, um, uh, from the central coastal region of California? And I've answered that question with, um, yeah, other parts of the country are not linked to the outbreak. This specific incident, this specific event, the the romaine that is on the market now that's coming from Yuma or St. Pete, it's not linked to the outbreak. But it is as safe or unsafe as it was before the outbreak from these other areas. And leafy greens and romaine lettuce are have a history of foodborne illness contamination, and they're inherently more risky than other um, produce and and this this business is no different. Um, it, and I, I think it is w- without sort of totally going off. This is the type of business that I would not want to buy from because they they don't at least in this quote really talk about that in a in a science based way where they they really could say there are risks associated with the stuff that we. Uh, that we're growing, there are different risks than than what's happening in the, in the outbreak. And here's how we're managing those risks. But saying things like "there's no dirt, there's no bugs, there's no chemicals, there's no pesticides" doesn't doesn't do um, doesn't do the hydroponic industry or the you know um, 
uh, uh, shipping container growing industry uh, uh, justice because there are people out there that that are controlling risks the best that they can, but it's not a no worry, no risk um, situation. And actually, let me go back on that. It's not a no risk situation. It might be a no worry situation. I don't know much about worry. Yeah, and and here's the thing. Um, her business is surging and it will surge with every outbreak theoretically until there's a hydroponic outbreak in which case her business might be crushed right and right. and i i really believe as hydroponic as the hydroponic business grows i my prediction is that there will be a hydroponic outbreak at some point right because the, because it's growing um and because if you screw up in a hydroponic situation, you can get massive contamination. Um, you know, again, this is not not the same as sprouts, but the nature of sprouts is that there those are operations that use a lot of water, and and if you get pathogen growth, and that water will spread that contamination over, uh, you know, an entire lot of uh, a lot of seeds, and uh, same thing can happen hydroponically. Again, I'm not an expert in hydroponics. Um, but, uh, I do think that it is, um, I don't want I wouldn't say a disaster waiting to happen, but it's not no risk. And, and, and it, I think, I really believe it will happen at some point as, especially as the, the, um, the, 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 the size of the market grows. Right. And, and, and breaking news on this, we actually, we've had one. Oh, um, there yeah, you go. Yeah. And, uh, in, back in 2013, there was, uh, uh, salmonella, uh, what kind of salmonella, some, some sort of salmonella, uh, outbreak linked to uh, greenhouse uh, from Mexico, uh, Miracle Greenhouse, and that was a hydroponic uh, system. Now, what we don't know is how hydroponic was it? Um, what was the type of hydroponic uh, system? And by hydro- how hydroponic was it? Do I mean, were they uh, growing um, cucumbers in actual soil that was, had a hydroponic um, uh, or a, a uh, an irrigation type system where they're using some synthetic uh, growing material like rock wool or cocoa wool. Um, yeah, was it, were, were these types of cucumbers grown directly in water? I don't, I mean, we don't have good information on that that I can get on my fingertips right now, but this was Salmonella St. Paul that was linked to um, 84 illnesses in 18 states and it was linked to a greenhouse uh, type product. So, um, but I'm, I think the romaine issue or lettuce issue from from um, uh, uh, hydroponics systems provides a different type of um, risk as well because often those uh, lettuces are sold with roots on non-edible portions. And um, my my guess is that if I was to find a pathogen in that system, I'm more likely to find it in the roots than I am in the leaves. And so I, it, that may be a different type of exposure, you know, that I, I, I see these at, at grocery stores. I've, I've bought, I've purchased, um, think like, um, butter, butter lettuce. What is it called? Something butter leaf lettuce. I don't know. It's not romaine. It's like, different. yeah, butter, butter leaf. It was what yeah. people were eating when they couldn't get romaine. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, um, the hydroponic version of that is often sold with roots on in, in retail stores. And so, and then I got a little like pooling of water at the bottom of it that probably came from the hydroponic system. And if I was to, f- if it, I think if we were to look for a pathogen, that's the most likely spot, just grab that water. 
Yeah, and and do me a favor. I so I am not finding. I'm I'm searching here for hydroponic uh, salmonella outbreak, and yeah. I'm not finding anything. So if you would shoot me that, I shoot will. me that link. I will, so I will. thanks. So uh, while you're while you're doing that, uh, I will um, uh, I will uh, go on to the second um, uh, the second article that um, uh, is mentioned by uh, Stephen, uh, and the headline there is oyster su- oysters suspected as jury awards couple 6.7 million in Tampa food poisoning. And uh, they ate at a place called Lobster Haven Shanty and Market. And from the looks of the photograph, I don't think the Lobster Haven Shanty and Market has $6.7 million to give anybody for food poisoning. So, um, yeah, uh, the, so the, the verdict came uh, in, in May, apparently, of it looks like of this year. Um, the um, the uh, years after the husband's illness led to a rare disorder that causes paralysis and nerve damage, which is the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, this uh, gentleman and his wife had eaten 10 times uh, at Lobster Haven, uh, and uh, oh, and, and apparently it was December 21st, 2013, uh, when they sat down to eat their usual three, two three-pound lobsters and a dozen Blue Point oysters. Um, yeah, so uh, it's yeah, oysters are a risky food. Um, I feel bad for um, the folks that got sick. Um, you know, if I had a seafood restaurant, I am not sure. I'm not sure that I would sell. Uh, raw oysters. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Lobster Haven's insurance company offered to settle for twenty thousand uh, dollars, but but by then the Martinez medical bills had reached uh, three hundred and twenty-five thousand uh, dollars. The restaurant had liability insurance up to one million, and the Martinez likely would have settled for that amount. Um, now the and so the 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 last line of the article says now this restaurant may go out of business because of the way his insurance handled this. So, anyway, uh, it's not uh yeah it's it's unfortunate. Um, I just there's nothing there's nothing good about any of that. So, yeah. Anyway, um, so that's uh, that's all I got on that. Yeah. Um, let's uh. Let's talk about um, store cleaning after the uh, lettuce outbreak. So uh, this is uh, says you can read my message, but not my name. I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call this person Deep Shelf for reasons that will become clear in a minute. Uh, she says, uh, sorry to identify your, your gender there. Um, the person says, uh, romaine lettuce is now, of course, pulled from my grocery store. My grocer filled the shelf space with other types of lettuce. Like like the the like aforementioned butter. Uh, yeah. butter that you mentioned, yes. Butter leaf. Um, I, I butter leaf. Um, uh, I wonder if the alternate lettuce is sitting in potentially pathogen-containing juices left behind by the romaine. You, you was <laughs> right. Um, uh, do grocery stores have sound procedures for cleaning and sanitizing produce displays, especially when they are removing recalled produce? Um, uh, yeah, you may use my alias Deep Shelf. Um, so different stores are different. Um, I think many of the big chains, I would suspect, do a good job in cleaning between stocking shelves, and especially after a recall like this. Again, one thing to remember is that most of the romaine that was recalled was not contaminated, and so the risks here are relatively small. Um, my advice to Deep Shelf was to uh, ask the produce manager um, what are their cleaning and sanitizing procedures and see what kind of an answer that you get. Um, uh, ask them what they do on a regular basis and then you can ask them whether they took any special precautions after the recall. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, and then the other thing, too, to maybe to reassure Deep Shelf was to say you could look at the CDC case map and see um, if uh, your 
particular state was highly affected. Again, that's not that's not a guarantee. But again, I was just sort of trying to, to you know inter- interject a little bit of risk based uh, thinking into this. And once again, I promised Deep Shelf that we will record episode one seventy one on December tenth. So, <laughs> liar! I, uh, really liar! I. You know, it was a, it was, you know, I, I, I thought we were going to, so I should, I, maybe I should be not so uh, specific in my feedback to people. So anyway, um, uh, your thoughts, Dr. Chapman. Yeah. So, um, we, I did actually working on a manuscript on this right now, um, on cleaning and sanitizing, um, is sort of the, the sub theme of, of the paper, but it was looking at, um, storage, uh, not storage display, um, uh, cases or display tables in retail stores. And um, the the focus of the project that we worked on was was really about cantaloupes and looking for listeria in, in those areas. Um, but during the, you know, as we sort of gathered some meta- metadata on cleaning and sanitizing of, of display, um, in, um, in grocery stores, we, we, I guess gathered some stuff where it was kind of like, it depends a little bit. And I, I'd say that the area that deep shelf is talking about, uh, in a wet produce, you know, the, those kind of areas where there's a lot of, uh, spraying to keep that produce looking fresh. There's a lot more cleaning and sanitizing there than there is in the dry display areas. Um, and it, it, it likely, and this will just be sort of speculation on my part, part of it's food safety, but more importantly, the cleaning and sanitizing there is is for quality, and it looks bad as it's kind of like wet and dirty and, and dripping and also can lead to some spoilage microorganism growth um, and reduce shelf um, availability for, for foods that are there. So I'd say that from the romaine side, I, I think that I agree with your your assessment on this, that there's a really uh, probably good cleaning and sanitizing um, for other reasons that has a benefit mm. here um, yeah. uh, for us. But, what I mean, we'll, uh, when the paper on this comes out, we'll talk a little bit more about what I, what I thought was maybe the most interesting on display was that the type of surface is really variable. So you may have some foam, you may have um, some mesh, um, there might be just plastic, there might be corrugated plastic, um, there may be wood, there might be um, reusable uh, plastic containers, there might be just cardboard, lots of different things. And I think that there's a lot more variability in the cleaning and sanitizing in the dry areas because of that. Because some of these things you just can't clean and sanitize very well. Um, and fortunately, um, the they also probably aren't good harborage areas for pathogens, but it, it was a lot more variable on on cleaning and sanitizing than those other areas. Yeah, and and as a as a kind of a, an interesting tangent to that, um, I've been working with a friend of the podcast, Michelle Daniluk, and others trying to get funding to look at uh, cleaning and sanitizing for packing house surfaces, which are uh, almost as equally diverse as the list that you read off for uh, for grocery store uh, shelves. And with an idea towards uh, helping packing house um, operators prioritize like which surfaces, which which kind of Hello. Now, 
what you could do is just tell the packing house, well, just change everything out, right? But that's not helpful because they need to they need to to phase this in and do it in a way that's cost effective. And so, but by able being able to identify what are the more high risk surfaces and prioritize getting those out, um, uh, that's gonna that's gonna help them with that uh, decision making. So, um, yeah. So so th- this it sounds like it's very much the same thing. There's probably you know some of those surfaces you mentioned sound terrible, right? Like right. Uh, foam. Foam is I I would say just I'm just gonna go out on a limb here and say foam. It's, it seems like it might be a nice idea because it's sort of nice and cushiony, but oh my gosh, foam is like a sponge and we know sponges are really dirty. It just sounds like a wonderful way to hold uh, water and food debris, you know, in a way that you can promote um, microbial growth. So it sounds, sounds disgusting. So, yeah, no, I absolutely. And I think that, um, that's, you we're, we're in a situation both in packing houses and in retail stores where we're, we're using contact surfaces for reasons of not bruising or damaging the product without, um, and we have been for a long time. Like, you know, at foam, uh, I, I think is, has, you know, it, it's, it's been used for, you know, decades. Um, but, um, but as we look at, okay, well, how do we, how do we actually clean and sanitize it? Now we have a, a different focus on how, what we need to do with those surfaces. And it's like, oh, well, it turns out it might not be the best thing that we should be using, but it's going to be really hard to change the, the culture. And what do we do about bruised, um, pro, you know, product because that foam allows for cushioning. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it's not a, uh, it's not an easy answer, but thanks to yeah. Deep Shelf for, for, uh, giving us something to talk about on it. Yeah. So, and this is, uh, we've got some um, uh, everyday food safety questions, three actually good everyday food safety questions from uh, listener um, Deep Soil. Uh, and he says, uh, so here are the three questions. I have one of those salt dishes where you pop it open and grab a pinch of kosher salt. Uh, when it was mostly empty, I refilled it, leaving the bottom, bottom centimeter unchanged. Am I at risk of harboring bacteria at the bottom if I never completely change out the salt? Um, I, I think that that kind of dispenser is, um, uh, is, is very low risk. We have um, uh, one of those, um, I think they're called, or at least the one that we have is called a salt pig. Some of these salt pigs actually look like actual pigs. We have um, one of those. Uh, oh, yeah, there <laughs> an, you go. An actual so, pig. Yep. Um, um, uh, the one that we have is ceramic, and then what we will do periodically is, uh, when it gets r- low, is you know dump out the salt and then just wash it in the dishwasher. Um, I think salt as a uh, it's it's not a very environment that's conducive to bacterial growth, and in fact, it's it's relatively toxic. So I wouldn't say zero risk, but I would say low risk. Um, but just from a, a yuck factor, probably it's good to to change it out from time to time. Um, and then he's got two more questions, and which I'll respond to, and then and then I'll. Let you talk for a little bit. Uh, he says, similarly, uh, I have an olive oil pourer that I like and I refill when it's empty-ish. Um, sometimes I give it a hot water rinse because it has a narrow top that makes it difficult to clean. Is there any real bacterial risk? And I'll say again, we we also, um, uh, we, we, we probably uh, eat similar uh, uh, similarly to uh, deep soil here. So we also have a refillable um, dispenser that we use for olive oil. Um, ours is glass and it has a rubber stopper with a metal um, a metal tube and actually an air air hole, so you can you can you know you can easily pour the olive oil out uh, without it um, you know glugging th- uh, through too much. And we will refill it several times um, until the outside of the glass is is kind of um, yucky looking from fingerprints and all that. And then again, we will take the stopper out, we will put it invert it, put it in the dishwasher and and wash it. Um, uh, again, we I don't know if Deep Soil has an automatic dishwasher, but I w- I would suggest that you know not every time, but every couple of times. Probably 
probably just, uh, wash it with with soap uh, and and hot water. Um, again, just for an aesthetic thing, not necessarily for a food safety thing. I think the the risks are are pretty low. We've talked in the past about um, uh, garlic and oil and herbs and oil, uh, but just olive oil by itself is, and even those are relatively low risk. But olive oil by itself also low risk. But again, more more an aesthetic aesthetic kind of thing. Um, and then finally, he says, I've got a wooden butcher's block cutting board. If I were to wrap the board in foil parchment or saran wrap, would it be safe to handle a raw turkey on top, remove the covering, and then use the board without cleaning? I That sounds a little yeah. more risky to me. I would be careful about any steps that involve handling raw poultry in the kitchen in general. Um, what if a small hole develops in the foil, uh, in the, the parchment or the plastic wrap? Would you notice it? Uh, what would you do if you did? Um, my, my general advice is anytime you handle raw poultry or any kind of raw meat in the kitchen, you should be aware of cross-contamination. Do a thorough cleaning when you're done. Um, again, I would stick to the original recommendations of use a plastic cutting board, wash that cutting board in the dishwasher. Um, you know, I, I, this just, I, you know, I just can't recommend it. I, I mean, again, it, it, it's probably a fairly low risk, but I, uh, I just, I, I would say, you know, again, of all the things he's talked about, the salt pig, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, the olive oil, I'm not going to worry about that. The, the wooden butcher's block, um, and then trying to prevent cr cross contamination with wrapping, um, the, uh, that just, that just seems quite risky to me. Uh, again, just based on my intuition and, and some of the work we've done with gloves, you know, you can get cross contamination just from changing your gloves, which is, you know, sort of an, an analogy situation so that's that's uh that's my thoughts yeah no i i mean nothing nothing to add uh uh on uh my side of things uh, only thing i want to point to is um a, a shout out to um the um my group's uh safe plates information center um so this is the the sort of uh, information center that is a uh, food safety extension in, in North Carolina. Um, and, uh, on our, um, uh, Twitter feed, which is, I'm trying to find it right now. I think it's like safe plates, FSIC. Um, we've done a whole bunch of stuff on food safety for the holidays and, and explicitly talking about if you're going to give a gift, like infused oil, um, here are some things to, to think about. Um, and so I will, we'll link to that in show notes, um, the Twitter feed, and you can see a whole bunch of different resources that we've been sharing all over the place that addresses a little adjacently to what you're talking about on oil. Oh, very good. Thank you. Um, so, um, and I know, I know you have, uh, you have a hard out here. We are not going to be able to get through all of this listener feedback. And so, um, I'm just going to punt these into the next episode. Yep. We got yep. about six or seven more, um, that we want to, uh, that we want to talk about. So, um, uh, yeah, so I, I think, uh, I think that's that's a show, and uh, I like uh, so I like the fact that we're having a conversation, and you're texting me at the same time. So <laughs> I think I think it would be great if we did a show uh, next week. I'm, yeah. I'm open to it. Um, I, we just got to schedule it around uh, my uh, schedule. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I think that's I think it's only fair to the listeners that uh, we had we had snow and had delay and 
Um, and and we, we wanted to get some of this out. So this is like, I think this is like a part one or two. Part one or two, holiday episode. Um, holiday episode, part one or two. We'll come back and uh, and get some more, go through some more feedback. Uh, and then there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to also talk about on Romaine and um, food safety and stadium food. and Oh, yes. Um, and botulism uh, risks in corn fiesta, fiesta corn from Del Monte, which for whatever reason I've done nine interviews on. Um, Whoa! Yeah, no, no. Like it's a recall, people, and doesn't. Uh, it's not a big deal. But people are very interested in retort and, and the retorting process. Huh. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But I think we'll we'll get to those in a in part two of this of this episode. So uh, hopefully there'll be another one real soon. So, Dawn, thanks thanks a lot, uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Also talk about um, um, uh, Devin Nunez's family's farm. Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> and and also another thing from Max: um, uh, why you might want to stop ordering hot drinks on a flight, um, just because uh, Max Max has concerns. <laughs> well, yeah, and po- and poo on uh, on McDonald's ordering boards. <laughs> oh, are all we didn't? Yeah, we got to get to we that. Didn't talk one about too. that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um. So yeah, and and how you fixed it? I uh, fixed it. Yeah, yeah, you fixed you fixed our headline. Um, cool. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I. Uh, you got a. I, yeah, I, you got a pre-call. I got a pre-call to the call, because um, there there are some concerns, and I'll. Uh, it's it's for it's for a, a, like a, a, a new after dark that I'll tell you about, but it's it, it's concerns that you will enjoy the context of about a project that we're doing, and um, and it comes down to um, uh, def- definitions and, and stuff. And I'm being very vague on purpose, but I'll yes. tell you the details, uh, at a, at a, uh, in the future. Okay. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, next week, if I, I don't know if you're, are, are you around on the 26th at all? Uh, I, I will, I will be in Ithaca on the 26th, but I could bring my gear. You could, I mean, I don't want to take away time from, from families and internet and stuff. No, it's fine. It's uh, fine. I mean, you know, it's I, I see them, you know, a couple times a year. It's fine. Well, <laughs> I, 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 it's fine. Okay. What, what time? What time on the twenty sixth? I'm like wide open. I know we're not like we're we don't have plans to do anything. Well, um, yeah. So because we we don't have any family coming on the uh, we've got stuff going on on the twenty third and the twenty fourth, and then obviously Christmas, and then on the twenty seventh we're gonna leave and go to DC for a hockey tournament. So the twenty cool. sixth is is like I'll you know I'll be sitting at home. Um, so you, you pick, you pick a, a time that you think would be best. 
Oh boy. Um, and we're and I'm flexible. So if you get there and you want to switch it, we can do that. Yeah. Let's uh, let's pencil in. Um, Hmm. 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 Um, let's pencil in nine o'clock. Yep. Perfect. That's like a good time. Cause for me, cause I think my kids will not be dressed. They'll be playing Fortnite. We'll bang out in a podcast and then we'll go eat lunch. Yeah. So, and I think I can, I can beg off on the family, family stuff until again, till lunchtime. So yeah. yeah. Okay. That's perfect. And yeah, I mean, we just have so much stuff to get to. I don't want to leave it another couple of weeks. We're, we yeah. do this for the yeah. listeners, Don. Yeah, and for exactly. us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, perfect. That's in there, and this this episode's mine. Yep. Um, and I think I, I hopefully the robot recording. I didn't listen to it, but hopefully that like turned out. Um, <laughs> okay. and call recorder. I updated call recorder, so I don't know if that was the issue too. I yeah, did I did. I did. I did too. So I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So um, cool. And yeah, so that I think that's it. Um, I didn't catch any good. Uh, titles uh, right away, but um, if you think of any, I'll, and I will, I'll listen. I'll re-listen to this this afternoon. Okay, that sounds good. And I, yeah, I got your link about the Salmonella St. Paul and cucumbers. That was hydroponics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I'm gonna make the assumption because it's a greenhouse system in Mexico, and it like I don't know of any other like I don't know of greenhouses that aren't using hydroponics. So it's it, it, okay. it, It's more of like that. Um, assumption of uh, you know, process of elimination, but when people talk about greenhouse, they are talking about they're interchangeably uh, hydroponic systems. Okay, because the, yeah, there's no wonder I didn't find it because it there's yep. no mention of the word hydroponics yep. anywhere in that in that story. So in that webpage. So yep, no, you're you're exactly right. Okay, cool, cool. All right, all right. Uh, I will talk to you soon. All right, bye, bye.